We are preaching through, uh, talking through, studying through Romans chapter 8, uh, and we're going to be talking in verses 28 through 30 this morning. Uh, but first, I want to talk about what a, a September we have had, right? I've been calling it Summer-tember, right? Who would have thought that the nicest month of the summer would have been September? Uh, it's been amazing. I've been praising God in my journal every morning. Thank you for the sunshine, right? And, and, and last couple weeks. But the question is, will I still be praising him Coming in January when the forecast looks more like this, right? With frozen hands lifted, hi, we're going to still praise him. And so much of our life boils down to, will we praise him in the sunshine and the rain? It hinges around this verse that we're going to be looking at this morning. And it's one of the most often quoted verses in scripture. But I'll say it's also one of the most misquoted verses in scripture. And it's Romans 8, 28, for we know that uh, for those who love God, all things work together for, for good. And the question we're going to ask ourselves this morning is, do we believe that he uses it all, the sunshine and the rain, for, for our good and for his, his glory? That's the question we're going to ask. But before we get into the scripture, we're going to ask two questions or look at two things. First of all, let's look at the testimony of one who has been there before. A few weeks ago, we talked about uh, Joni Erickson Tata, a woman who was paralyzed at the age of 17 uh, in a diving accident. And you imagine the helplessness, you imagine the anger at God that would ensue from that kind of a life situation, having to spend the rest of your days in a wheelchair. But listen to Joni and the way that she speaks about how God used her tragic circumstance for good. This is incredible. She says, we are not always responsible for the circumstances in which we find ourselves. However, we are responsible for the way we respond to them. We can give up in depression and suicidal despair, or we can look to a sovereign God who has everything under control, who can use the experiences for our ultimate good by transforming us into the image of Christ. And this is crazy what she says next. God has engineered my circumstances. You catch that? A life of paralysis. God engineered that? He used them to prove himself as well as my loyalty. And this next sentence amazes me. Now, not everyone has this privilege. She calls this a privilege. I thought there were only a few people God cared for in such a special way that he would trust them with this kind of an experience. This understanding left me relaxed and comfortable as I relied on his love, exercising newly learned trust. And then she says, I saw that my injury was not a tragedy, but a gift God was using to conform me to the image of Christ. If that can be Joni's attitude in a lifetime of paralysis, can it not be mine in my circumstances today? But why isn't this always our response? Like, why aren't we always saying the things that Joni's saying here? And there's a lot of reasons, but two things, two perspectives that, that we tend to lose sight of. I think we tend to lose sight. Of, we, we, you and I, we focus on the immediate where God, he sees the ultimate. That you and I, our, our knowledge is limited, but God's is not. It's, it's infinite. And, and I was thinking about this. I love puzzles. I think I get that from my, my grandmother. Uh, I, I also got her hips, I think. So, uh, but I, I, I cling, I, I, I got like OCD when it comes to puzzles. And I cling to that picture on the box. And if I don't know, well, I'm seeing this puzzle piece and it's got squiggly lines. Is that water? Is that sky? And I am freaking out because I don't know where this puzzle piece fits into the bigger picture. And so many times, I think in our lives, we are looking at the one puzzle piece in our life today and we don't see how it fits into the big picture. But here is our sovereign God who not only sees the picture on the box, he created it. And God who stands outside of time, he sees the picture of our life from beginning to end. He sees the ultimate. 
Last week, we talked about the fact that we as believers here on earth have to move from groaning before there will be glory. And that you and I right now in these fallen bodies are experiencing the groaning uh, as, all is, of all, as all of creation is. But then the good news we saw is the Holy Spirit is here to help us in our current groaning and to secure for us that glory to come that he says you can't even compare with the current groanings that we're experiencing. And the Holy Spirit's here to walk us through that. He said, likewise, verse 26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words according to the will of God. Now the Holy Spirit, he says, he groans for us when we're too weak, when we don't see what God sees. But then he says here, how does he do it? According to the will of God. So here's the million dollar question for us this morning. What is the will of God? What's his will for my life? And it's fitting as we this morning launch into the second service and we look as we're going forward and going, God, what is your will for our church? Where are you taking us? What are you doing? What's your plan for Peninsula Grace? And the good news is he has made it abundantly clear in his word. He has not hidden this from us. He's revealed to us what his plan is. And this morning, what we're going to look at is this unshakable promise and plan that God has given us as a church and as individuals. First, we want to see an unconditional promise, and then we'll look at an unfathomable plan. And this promise, this promise we're going to see is to be claimed, not to be ignored. Verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. This word know here, it means an absolute unshakable promise. This is not us with fingers crossed saying, I hope this all works for good. Like, I hope God doesn't let me down. I hope he didn't forget about this little monkey wrench in my life. This is God based on his word, the promise in his word, and the way he has proved himself over and over and over again in my life and in all of human history. There's an unshakable promise that, that it rests on his certain word to us and on his faithfulness that we've seen in the past. And, and the question is, will we choose to believe it, cling to this promise, when the puzzle pieces in our life could not be more puzzling or despairing? Will we believe this when you get the call? Your wife's been in an accident. And it's, it's not life-threatening, but it is serious, and you need to come now. Will we believe this? What happens when there's a pain in your chest and it requires medical attention and you get the call from the doctor and the, the, the C word is used? What happens when the principal calls and the word drugs is used in the same sentence as our own child? Well, we believe this. What happens when you, the boss calls you into his office and there's a pink slip sitting on the desk puzzling pieces that we don't see how in the world this could fit in to God's plan? But this verse, if it's believed, man, this, this will help us take any accident, any failure, any sin in our life that would otherwise, as Joni said, lead to suicidal depression. And we can say, Lord, take this and use it as you wish for your purposes and your plan. And what we can come to know is there's this unshakable promise. I'm using that puzzle piece too. I'm using that one for good as well. This promise is for us to be claimed. It's also a project that belongs to God, not to us. He says here, we know that God causes all things to work together for good. And the New American Standard 
standard words it that way, but no matter which one you use, the original Greek, God is the subject of the sentence. He's the one working all things for good. And I was thinking about the analogy of the potter and the clay, Jeremiah 18, this beautiful word picture that that God gives to Israel, but it applies to us, to every individual. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. The potter is in charge from start to finish. It's his work, not ours. The clay, (laughs) the clay is just there to be used. We don't get to tell the potter what to do with our lives. We simply make ourselves available. I was thinking about this week uh, as I made an omelet. Um, I, I love, I was having this conversation with my onion, which you do when you, when you uh, live alone. You just start to talk to your vegetables. Um, I, I, I looked at this onion. I said, you poor little onion. Here you were hanging out in my fridge, nice and cool, right? You were doing your own thing, uh, having, having a good time. And now here I come, the master chef. That's what I call myself in my kitchen, the master chef. Um, and I, I rip you out of your home right? I rip you out of your nice, cool little home, and now I start chopping you up. I'm cutting you, poor little onion. I am ripping you apart from yourself, right? You're an onion apart. And now I'm going to throw you into this pan where it's hot, and you're being burned, and you're being seared, and I'm going to throw all these other strangers in with you, this sausage, this pepper, this eggs, and you don't know what's going on. For you, this is misery. This is torture. But what I, the master chef, am making out of you will be delicious. And wonderful, and it'll be used for my glory, and you're good, right? We say to God, like the clay says to the potter, like the onion says to the master chef, this hurts, this burns, I don't understand, I, I can't see from my limited point of view how you're using this for good, but I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you that you, this is your project, that you are causing all things to work together for good. It's your work, not mine, and I will trust your handiwork even when it hurts. This project is his, not ours. This plan is total. It's not partial. Notice he says all things work together for good. Not some things, not a few of the things, not even most of the things. All things work together for good. I remember when we decided months ago, two services, I don't know what we were thinking, uh, I thought, oh, that's easy, right? We'll just do whatever we're doing now twice. Like, How hard could that be? (laughs) That was cute. (laughs) I never knew all that would go into just having two services. And I want to thank, but all the children's workers, the greeters, the ushers, uh, you know, all the the team of, I mean, this chair setup, worship practice now has to be outside of Sunday morning because we're getting earlier and all this. I mean, there's so much that goes into it. And I felt completely overwhelmed just making this one change to this one little church in this one little town. And here's God saying that I use all things. I mean, think about for a minute what that, the billions and billions of things, people and planets and, and, and events that are going on in human history at even any given one time. I mean, just think about the physical world right now. The East Coast is being wrecked by Hurricane Florence. You, you think about all the, the, the sin of man, all the wars, right, all the injustices going on in the world today. Just from the heart of man, you think, I mean, you, you think about Satan and his cronies and what they're trying to do. You think about all of these things. And, and our passage today says God is not only sovereign over all of them, but he is actually using all of those things for your good. What a good, mighty, sovereign God we serve. This plan is total. It's not partial. 
And finally, this purpose is good. It's not evil. He says, all things work together for good, for good. Now, listen, God himself, he uses evil for good, but he himself is not evil, nor does he create evil. Scripture is clear on this. First John 1 says, there is no darkness in him. He is holy. He is other. He is light. There's no sin, no darkness in our God. He does not tempt us. Now, does he discipline us? Does he cause us to walk? He, he moves us through temptation, but he himself is not the tempter. That's Satan's job. And he is not the author of confusion. 1 Corinthians 14, God's a God of order, not a God of chaos or confusion. But we do know of God. You remember the story of Joseph and his brothers and what Joseph said to his brothers after they had thrown their brother in a pit and sold him into slavery. He said, you, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God took the evil he did not create the evil. He took the evil, and he used it for my good. And the crazy thing was, not only Joseph's good, but for his brother's good, the very ones who had done the evil, and for their, for their future, not as just Israel, but for us as well. Now, many sermons on this passage, they end right here. I think this is why it's so often quoted, but also misquoted. We love putting this verse on the back of bumper stickers, uh, on our little Instagram posts, like this, looks something like this, right? You kind of get your coffee and your scone and your mug all kind of strategically placed so people can know you're doing your devotions. I'm not knocking anybody who does that, uh, really, but, um, <laughs> but we say here, man, God uses all things for good. Now, can we just say nobody's coffee mug actually looks like that? Like the heart thing, that doesn't happen, right? That's not real. I know one person in here is probably like, oh, I do that. Well, you know what? I'm preaching, so you just listen. <laughs> now, yes, God uses everything for good. He uses it all for good. But here's the, the question. What is that good? Because oftentimes, I think what we think is good is very different than what God might call good. So what is his plan? He's given us an unshakable, an unconditional promise. But what is that plan? Second thing we'll see here is an unfathomable plan. He tells us here in verse 29, it's certain by the means of God's will. This is God's will. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. These are really easy verses to just kind of walk through, right? Not much, not much there, not much theology. Paul says here, that God's plan for you, his will for you, his heart for you, is for you to be conformed into the image of Jesus. That's his purpose for you ultimately, is to look like Jesus. And he says here that he predestined this. Now the word predestined, it means pre means beforehand, and destined, where we get our word destiny, this is means to determine. So he determined beforehand what would happen in our lives. Now this word can cause a lot of controversy in the church world. And when you look at a word like predestined, you always have to ask yourself a few questions for the context. So a couple questions here. Who did the choosing? God did the choosing. Who, who predestined? He predestined. This is God's plan. It's his purpose. And then who did he predestine? Well, we're talking here to believers. The, the context, Romans 6 through 8, talking about the growth of the believer. He says, for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose... Here's who he chose. God chose believers. And what did he choose them for? He says he predestined them. What were they chosen for? To be conformed to the image of Jesus. So he's saying God's plan, his will, his purpose for the believer is to be made into the image of Jesus. Now what does that mean to be conformed into his image? Well, a couple of words here. The word conform, the Greek word here is summorphous. You might see that word morph in there. It means to be transformed inwardly, and then eventually that will be reflected outwardly. You've seen the miracle process of a caterpillar, an ugly little caterpillar being transformed into a glorious butterfly. And this process is called what? Metamorphosis. 
It's the process of an inward change that produces outward results. And you and I, as we're conformed, this is not just external behavior copying. We're not just watching Jesus. We go back to our storybook Bibles and go, well, I'll wear a white robe with a blue or purple sash like Jesus, and I'll try to do what he did. I'll try to walk on water, see what I can do with fish and loaves. It's not just external behavior modification. This is actually a change that's going to happen inside of our hearts. And as that change occurs, it will start to evidence itself in the way that we live, in our character and in our behavior. We are being conformed, changed into what? The next phrase he uses is the image of his son. Now this, this Greek word here is called is the word icon, which we have an English kind of transliteration of that, icon, and we know that today. This is a more updated uh, definition from Webster's. Graphic symbol that represents an app, an object, or a function. Now what's the purpose of an image or an icon? The purpose of that image is to represent, to point people to, to remind people of the reality of the image it bears, right? That's the purpose of this thing. I was thinking about this. I have a poster in my bedroom of Kevin Durant. And yes, I'm 34, but some of my life functions still very much more like a 15-year-old boy. And uh, so here's this picture of Kevin Durant in, in my room. Now, what's the purpose of this poster? It's not just that I really loved this picture, like, man, look at the way he's moving, and I just love this poster, I'm all about this poster. The reason I have this poster is to remind me of the reality of the real person, Kevin Durant, and how much I love him, or actually how much I used to love him, until he got transferred to my least favorite team, and now they beat us in the playoffs, and he stole my heart, put it on the ground, and did the Mexican hat dance all over it, all right? So I'm, I'm moving past that, right? I didn't burn this poster or anything. Um, where was I? The purpose, the, pur- the, right, the purpose of this poster is to remind me of the reality of who Kevin Durant is. The, the purpose, the reason that we reflect the, glor- the, the image of God, that we're being turned into that image, it's not about us. The reason we're being conformed into his image is to glorify the reality of the one whose image we bear. This is all about Jesus. And he says this, look at the next verse, and this part might seem a little strange as we first read it. He says, in order that, here's why we're conformed into his image. He says, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, what is that to us in our culture where firstborn is not a really big deal? This doesn't have as much resonance with us. But this is not just saying that, oh, he just wanted Jesus to be born out of the womb first. And the rest of us are just simply younger than him. See, in their culture, the firstborn was what they called the preeminent one. They're the one that got all the blessing, all the birthright, the inheritance from their father, the land, which for them was everything. So in this culture, the oldest was held above all the other siblings in honor, kind of like in my family, I guess, which is awesome. Um, we, here, here's the reality. What he's saying here is Jesus is to be the firstborn, that Jesus is lifted high. Yes, we're being made into his image, but Jesus is the one that has center stage. Colossians 1.18 makes this abundantly clear. He, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Why? That in everything, he might be preeminent. That's a big word for meaning he's number one. That, that he surpasses all else, that everything else in the universe is focused around, pointing toward, magnifying, and glorifying the name of Jesus Christ, our King. And the reason this verse is so often taken out of context is that we put our definition on good. And we say he's working it out for my good. This verse does not say that God is working all things so that your bank account will get bigger. It's not saying that God works all things so that you won't be sick anymore. That all your relationships will work out the way they're supposed to. And that he'll just smooth out all the bumps on the road. That is not the promise here. 
What he promises here is he's going to use all things to make us more like Jesus as posters, as statues that accurately reflect the glory of who he is so that people will lift high the name of Jesus. So maybe, maybe, when he doesn't take away that sickness in your life or in the life of your loved one, maybe he's developing Jesus' fruit of patience in you. And you have the privilege of glorifying Jesus, the one who patiently endured the cross for you and who patiently puts up with us knuckleheads every single day. And maybe, maybe when he puts that person in your life that you can't stand, maybe he's developing in your heart a love for people that is not based on merit, but based on the love that God has for us. And we glorify Jesus And the fact that, I mean, who was Jesus? He loved us when we were his enemies. The very ones who were crucifying him on the cross said, Father, forgive them in this moment. They don't know what they're doing. And his love for us was not based on our merit. Not because we deserved it, but because he is love. And and maybe, maybe when that temptation in your life isn't just magically taken away, maybe God's developing you the Christ-like fruit of self-control and dependence on him and we're glorifying the image of Jesus. When he walked this earth, the way that he resisted the temptation of Satan in the wilderness, the way that he in the garden sweat drops of blood saying, not my will, but yours. I trust you, Father. And on the cross, as he's dying, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He's lifting high Jesus. And the good, listen, the good is not to make us look awesome. The good is not to make us healthy and wealthy and happy but it's to image and reflect the glory of Jesus. And let me tell you, that's his glory, but it's also our good. There is nothing in the universe more satisfying than delighting in who Jesus is. Nothing more satisfying than having a relationship with him. And as we bear his image, we are able to have that relationship with the only one that'll satisfy him. It's uh, it's his will, and it's also a comprehensive plan It's God's work. It's God's work. Look at what he says here. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he also just called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Five parts to God's glorious, sure plan. First one is he says he foreknew. Now this is more than just knowing the facts ahead of time. Like if I DVR a basketball game and then I go and watch it, I already know the results. This isn't just knowing like facts, like two plus two equals four. The word here is gnosis. It's it's an intimate knowledge, the way you would know a spouse or a a close friend. William Newell used the word pre-acquaintance. That God intimately knew you beforehand. He uses a beautiful word in in the, the, the Hebrew version of this word. Back in Jeremiah 1, God's talking to Jeremiah and he says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I set you apart for this purpose. That's what that word means. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Here's God saying, I stand outside of time. And before I even knit you in your mother's womb, I had an intimate knowledge of who you are, who you would become, and how I would use all the events in your life, the sunshine and the rain, for my plan to make you like my son and glorify him. In fact, not only did he foreknow us, it says he predestined us. And brothers and sisters, this is the rock that we stand on. This is our anchor in the storm that the all-sovereign God would choose before we even took a single gasp of breath 
That from the moment that you placed your faith in Christ, he would begin this metamorphosis in us from a caterpillar to a butterfly. And if God says that will happen, there is nothing in heaven, on earth, or in hell that can thwart his plan. In fact, he tells us next week, there's nothing, there's nothing that can throw a wrench into this thing. No person, no power, no lie. And then it says, they called us. Not only did he predestine us, he called us. This word means to call in a loud voice, to invite. Now you might say, how in the world could God invite a, a dirty sinner into his holy presence? Because the next part of the plan, those he called, he justified. And what do we see in Romans 3 through 5? What we, what we read in there was that God declares and treats us in his sight as holy, blameless, perfect, right. And how in the world can God make that kind of an audacious claim to call the sin, sinner holy, to call the imperfect perfect? Well, we saw, we worked through the fact that the reason he could do this is because of the cross. That God, that Jesus, he sent Jesus to absorb our wrath, to take our punishment, and then to give us his right standing with the Father. With the Father. And now in Christ, there is no condemnation. There is nothing that can separate us from his love. So when Satan, or someone else in your life, or even the lies in your own head tell you, there's no way God could use that for good. There's no way that sin in your life can be worked through. There's no way that suffering, that temptation, that tragedy could be a part of God's plan. There's no way. That you've stepped too far out of bounds, that you went too far, and God blows his whistle. Technical foul, you're out of the game. Can't use that for good. The reality to that, Paul says next week, if God's for you, who can be against you? If God's declared you right, who can ever say anything against you? And the final one, <coughs> excuse me, it says he glorified. Those he justified, he glorified. Now what's that mean? What does it mean to glorify? Well, this is the reality of what he said in verse 29. To be conformed in the image of God, we are right now in that sanctification process, becoming more and more like him. Glorification is when this is fully realized. There's this glorious day coming when we're going to see him face to face. And the Bible tells us when we see him, we will be just like him. One of my favorite verses in all of scripture, 1 John 3, 2, Beloved. We are God's children now, today. And then we say last week, that's what the Holy Spirit does in our heart. He cries out from us, Abba, Father, reminds us of this adopted relationship. What we will be has not yet appeared. This is coming, our glorified state. But we know, unshakable confidence, that when he appears, we shall be like him. Why? Because we shall see him as he is. Today, we look to Jesus by faith, and we are being transformed into his image. But when we see him, in full flesh, in all of his glory, it says we will become just like him. And we say that's our mission as a church, to present everyone complete, mature, perfect in Christ. Everything we're doing is moving people down that growth path so that one day we see him and we will be just like him. Perfectly reflecting the image of Jesus and glorifying him. Now, it's an interesting here, he uses the past tense. Notice he does not say that those he justified, he will glorify, he says, those he justified, he glorified. This is the past perfect tense in the Greek. Now, how in the world can that be? This is something that's coming for us down the road. So how can he say he glorified us? Well, you and I, we live outside of time and space. Like, I can't say, I ate a sandwich tomorrow, right? I can't do that until tomorrow. I will eat a sandwich tomorrow. But actually, I won't, because that's not on my paleo plan, right? 
but I could if I wanted to. What are you going to do about it? Uh, so, but here's God who lives outside of space and time. And, and this God, he says, if, 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 if God says this is where it's all going to end, then that's where it's going to end. And if the all-powerful God makes a promise, it's not just dependable. It's as though it already happened. And for God who lives outside of space and time, it already has. This is part of his glorious, sovereign plan. If he has justified you, he has glorified you. I love what Ray Stedman says. He says, no one is lost. This talks to the security of the believer. Because, here's why no one gets lost. Because God is responsible for the entire process. If this was up to me, I'd be up a creek without a paddle. But if this is God's sovereign plan, and if he's going to finish in me what he started, then we can bank on this. In fact, that's what Philippians 1 says. I am sure of this. Paul says, I'm confident in this. I'm not wavering in this. That he who began a good work in you will, 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 that's a promise word, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. If you've been declared right in his sight as a believer today, we can know this is where the story ends, face to face with Jesus, perfectly reflecting his glory. Well, there's an important qualification to end here. This promise is not for all humans. What did he say back in verse 28? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Many, many unbelievers are not having everything work together for good in their lives. They will not be conformed in the image of Jesus. This is only a promise for those, he says, who love God. They say, well, wait a second. Does that mean I have to like, love God perfectly before he'll do this in my life? Is this kind of a works-based promise for me? We have to remember how love works. First John 4 reminds us of this. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. We love, why? Because he first loved us. Listen, God initiates our salvation. God initiates the love. And he showed the greatest demonstration of love in sending Jesus to die in our place. But now, with his spirit in us, I I love the way that William Newell says this, we cannot work up our love for God, but his redeeming love for us, believed in, this is a faith issue, becomes the eternal cause and spring of our love for God. Isn't that what the Holy Spirit's doing in our hearts? Pouring his love into our hearts, and then from our hearts, rejoicing back, loving God as our perfect Father. Obeying God, loving God, and for us, the promise is that he'll finish what he started and make us more like Jesus. If you will give your heart to him by faith, trusting, if I give you my heart, this is a terrifying thing, the trust that you use in all this for good, but I'm going to give it to you, trusting that you're not going to drop it, that you're not going to lose it, and that you're going to continue to mold it into the heart of Jesus, using it all for good. Will you believe this promise when the puzzle pieces in your life don't seem to fit? When you don't see how this could make a beautiful picture, and like Joni's paralysis, will we believe that God is using all of it, every single puzzle piece, the puzzle piece of suffering, the puzzle piece of sin, the puzzle piece of failure, that he's using it all in your life for the good. And what good? To make us more like Jesus, to reflect the glory of the preeminent one. And next week, we're going to see this beautiful truth that what, Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? He's kind of wrapping up the climax of chapter 8. He's going to look back at everything he's written in these first eight chapters. What shall we say to all of this? If God is for us, who in the world can be against us? If God is on our side, nothing can separate us from God's sure hands, from God's sure love, his sure plan. You and I are as good as glorified. Let's pray. Father, it can be a terrifying thing to entrust our hearts into your hands. Lord, we've been burned by so many people before. Many of us in this room have have suffered unbelievable tragedies and hurt and sin and failure. 
And Lord, right now, we look at our circumstances and we cannot see how in the world you're using these puzzle pieces to put together this picture that looks like Jesus. How you could be using this for our good. So Father, I pray that you would give us the grace to trust you more. That you, that you in, in your holy work, as you are making us like Jesus, Lord, give us the grace to trust you. That we might surrender ourselves to your hands and say, I know I can't see the finish from the end, but I'm trusting the one who does. Here's my heart, Lord. Help us believe the promise today so that we can be like the unshakable, standing on the rock of Jesus' promise. As we're reminded and we look back at your history of faithfulness, we can step forward into the future knowing that even in the midst of the glory, the midst of the groaning, you're using it all for that one beautiful day when Jesus comes back that we may, may not be ashamed but we will be in your sight, blameless and perfect like Jesus, glorifying him as we reflect his image. All these things, pray in the beautiful name of the one who will keep us from falling. Amen.